All right, well, Matthew 15. We're more than halfway through Matthew. All right. I was pretty excited. Get there myself. Oh, what a fun chapter. Jesus engaging with the Pharisees. If you've read ahead, you know they asked for it. And uh, they get some of Jesus' best. Man, I wish I could have been there for some of those conversations. So. All right, well, um, uh, you guys know that uh, Miss Teresa Peterson passed away. We had her memorial yesterday, and uh, it was good getting to meet some of her, her family, her friends, and just hearing other stories about um, all the wonderful things we already knew about her and her delightful disposition. And, um, so it was sweet. Uh, continue to pray, uh, please, for the family. Uh, maybe you don't know, um, but Chris and Janet Burt, Janet's sister, Judy, passed away uh, last week, and uh, we don't have um, dates yet for the memorial, but I um, uh, want to be praying for them, and uh, we'll put out details as, as we have them. And then uh, many of you know uh, Michael Stone, who has taught uh, many times at the men's breakfast. Uh, he has taught for me here at the pulpit. And uh, he has been operating on not very much heart for a very, very long time. And uh, he's been in and out of the hospital. And uh, he's now been brought home on hospice. And he's just quickly uh, declining. And, uh, <clears throat> but if you know Michael, uh, you know that um, he's eager to meet the king. And uh, so while I'm super sad to see him... Uh, leaving us, um, I'm also excited for him and for these two walking in with his new baby. <laughs> I get first dibs on that baby after service, okay? All right. Well, why don't we stand up and we'll um, read the Word of God together and then we'll, we'll pray. Matthew chapter 15, uh, verse 1 through 20. I think we can get through it all today. It's kind of all bunched together. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, and he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me? And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men? When he had called the multitude, to himself, he said to them, hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, that defiles a man. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? 
But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Don't worry, mothers. I will explain all of that in a moment. Okay? All right. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, Lord, we've, as a church, we've seen just a lot of people move from us and into your presence. And it's, it's been really hard. But Lord, I am just so thankful for the privilege of knowing so many great people. And Lord, over the years, so many good friends and, and uh, lovers of God that I've had the privilege of um, just being with and walking through this process of leaving this place to go to you, Lord. And then the sweet privilege of just honoring them uh, and eulogizing them, Lord. And Lord, I just would ask that again, as you have been so faithful in the past to minister to the hearts and the minds of your people who are left here. And so, Lord, for Teresa's family, for Judy's family, Lord, for Michael's family, Lord, do for them what I could only dream of doing, of comforting and strengthening. And uh, just, Lord, be with them and grant them your grace, I pray. And Lord, I pray that you would also use your word to encourage us. Lord Jesus, your example, your teaching perspective, (laughs) your defense of the truth and of people. Uh, Help us to be courageous like you, Lord. Thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Are you the only Kuykendall here? Oh, I guess I'll thank your father publicly later when he's here. So, yeah. Well, let's uh, let's go back to verse 1 and uh, look at this (laughs) interaction. So, It says, then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem, that is about 80 miles south of where Jesus uh, does most of his ministry in Galilee, they came to Jesus saying, why do your disciples, now mind you, this is not a, a criticism of the disciples. This is a criticism of their leader. Okay, they're attacking Jesus by way of the disciples because a disciple does what their rabbi, their teacher does. And so if he wanted to insult the rabbi, he insult his students, okay? He says, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Talk about Jesus' answer in a minute. So it's no longer, you know, just the people from all of these surrounding areas, uh, you know, of the north that Jesus is attracting, Uh, And he has attracted some of the smaller town, country, Pharisees, rabbis, and scribes, okay? Uh, Things are different. Word has been getting down to Jerusalem to where the big guns are. And so they're no longer satisfied with getting reports from these country rabbis. Uh, They need to go. They need to see what's going on. This religious movement is growing, and Jesus' name is being used in multiple contexts and conversations. And so they, they don't want to simply just come and observe. They want to come and interact. They want to scrutinize uh, both Jesus' teaching and then what he's doing. And notice how, or notice what rather, their big complaint is. It, it, it's not that Jesus is like teaching 
you know, false doctrine. He's, he's not leading some kind of religious rebellion. He's not blaspheming God or God's law. He's not doing anything immoral. He's not teaching others to be immoral. Their complaint was that his disciples were not washing their hands before they ate, as was required by, it says, the tradition of the elders. Now, understand the elders, these are those rabbis who have died long ago, some of them even generations ago. Okay? They had, over time, um, had come up with hundreds of traditions for the Jewish people to obey. And, uh, and then by the time that it had come to where they're at in their history, these traditions were, were sacred, were sacred. And it wasn't just hand washing uh, that tradition required, it was just a host of nonsense. The, the Gospel of Mark, uh, and one of the benefits of it is that it was written to a non-Jewish audience. When, the, when the, Matthew was written to a Jewish audience, so when the word tradition is thrown out there, all of the Jewish readers go, mm, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. But when Mark, writing to a Greek audience, the word tradition is used, they have no idea what Mark is talking about, or yeah, Mark is talking about as far as Jewish tradition is concerned. Okay, so he speaks to them, and what he says is, he says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders when they come from the marketplace. They do not eat unless they wash, and there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches, and a comma could have been used a thousand more times after that. But Mark, he's the, you know, the, the, the gospel in brevity, so he was just throwing it out there. John does some of that as well. Now, what we have to understand, I think, as, as Westerners, is that these washings were not for sanitary purposes, but for spiritual and ceremonial issues. The Jews were afraid, the, the Pharisees especially, that when they went to the marketplace, where there may have been Gentiles, of all things, or Jews that were in some way ceremonially unclean, that those people had been in the marketplace and touched a piece of fruit or uh, something they wanted to purchase, uh, even the dust on the ground, perhaps, and then the Pharisees then go into the marketplace and they touch that same piece of fruit, that item that they were going to buy, and then the uncleanness of the Gentile would then be transferred to them. And then they would be considered ceremonially unclean, but they had taken the idea of ceremonial uncleanliness to a higher level than what God's Word said, and they made it a spiritual thing. They didn't want to be dirty spiritually because of these unclean people. So here in our story, you guys understand, it's a showdown. It's a showdown. Not, not between what God's Word says versus what the disciples were failing to do, but between what tradition said and what tradition said the disciples were failing to do. You know, this is a, you guys, this is a serious problem, even if the Pharisees weren't guilty of what Jesus is about to accuse them of. And I can say this with confidence because Jesus and the disciples were already ignoring tradition because it had zero authority. authority. Now, I'm going to talk about tradition, not just about the Jews. They're really easy to pick on. Uh, I'm going to pick on us as well, okay? And some of you uh, probably come from uh, what is called a liturgical tradition, okay? Catholic, Episcopalian, Lutheran, Presbyterian. Uh, there's probably other 
um, traditions out there that are liturgical in form. Um, and you may have been indoctrinated to think that tradition has some authority. Now, traditionalists usually argue for value rather than authority. But in practice, it always comes down to authority. Okay? Here's the problem. <clears throat> when we start requiring people to do something that is not required in Scripture, we're commanding people to do something that God has not required of them. So what we're doing is we're demanding more than what God has demanded. How many of you guys have a problem with that? Just some of you. Okay, we're going we're gonna to spend some time here. And then when people do not comply, the traditionalist finds fault and then considers them to be less spiritual or sinful, just as the Pharisees were doing here in our story. This is calling, considering a particular behavior sinful when God does not call it sinful. And when we do that, we're saying that our tradition has as much or greater authority than God's word. To call something sin, though, that God does not call sin, and then to treat the offender as a sinner when God does not treat them as offender, is itself sin. Do you understand? It's sinful to require more of people than what God requires, and it's sinful to treat them as an offender when God doesn't treat them that way. And this doesn't matter if it happens as a result of Jewish tradition or church tradition. If God does not call it sin, <clears throat> we have no authority to call it sin. And if God does not treat that person as an offender, we have no right, no authority to treat them as an offender. We're not holier than God, and we cannot create by our traditions a standard of holiness that is greater than what God's word has prescribed. I think that it's the, it's the height of presumption and arrogance for us to go beyond the scriptures and establish something that we think is, is more spiritual than, than God's word. You understand? I think it's so arrogant of us. And, and, and what it does in a way is it, it communicates to others that God's, that God's word is, is, is not enough and that God really needed our help to, to make this right. Okay? And if you believe that, I'm, I really feel bad for you. Now, if you've been at Calvary Chapel for very long at all, you've heard me say that I don't really have much use for tradition. But to be honest, my opinion is sometimes much stronger than that. Okay? Uh, some traditions, just, they just bother me. Okay? And oftentimes I don't say anything, but there are other traditions that I hate. Is that a strong enough word for it? I just hate it. Do you think Jesus hated tradition in, in here, in, in, in what it's doing? Yeah. And those are the traditions that some churches have where they think that the way they are doing things is superior to others. And again, by tradition, we're talking about things that are not taught in Scripture. And it's not enough to say that tradition has less authority than the Bible. I think it's completely misleading. Completely misleading. It must be said, and I believe very loudly and clearly, that tradition has zero authority. Zero authority. And I'm not saying that all tradition is bad, but as soon as tradition is granted a measure of authority above zero, there's a problem. There's a problem. The disciples did not wash their hands at all because tradition had no authority at all. If it had any authority whatsoever, Jesus would at least have said, wipe them on your pants. He would have said something, but there was nothing. They didn't have pants, okay? Nobody wore trousers back then. Dust them off. Do something, okay? 
but he didn't. Now, it might be nasty to not wash your hands before you eat, but that's not a spiritual matter. It's a sanitary and health issue. Now, I, I need to put all the moms with little children at ease at this point, okay? You can still require your children to honor you by obeying your house rule for them to wash their hands before they eat. Amen? Okay, because kids are nasty, okay? And they don't need to bring that in the house, they don't need to bring it to the table, and they probably shouldn't put it in their mouth, okay? And if they do not wash their hands, their sin will not be unwashed hands. It's their failure to obey and honor their mother. That's the sin. Now listen, just as it would be sinful for your child to keep reading their Bible after you told them to do their chores. The sin wouldn't be reading their Bible. Their sin would be, what? Not obeying their mother. That's right. Uh, Just to clarify, children, obey your parents in all things. Now, I know most of the children here are homeschooled, so they know what all means. Okay, all things. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord, Colossians 3.20. So obeying your parents is obeying the Lord. Of course, unless they tell you to do something immoral or in violation of God's word. Back to our text. So the Pharisees have brought an accusation against Jesus, really, for violating a tradition of dead rabbis. And as we can expect, Jesus has a response. It's not a political one, and it's certainly not a politically correct one. Okay? He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? That is, by way of your tradition or by use of your tradition, you have broken, disobeyed, transgressed the commandment of God. Do you think he has their attention at this point? Yeah, they're listening. For God commanded saying, honor your father and your mother. He could have stopped there, but he didn't for good reason. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. There's actually two commandments here, okay? The one is the command to honor father and mother, and the other is to put to death those who curse their mother or father. Both are found multiple times in the law of God. To honor father and mother is initially found in the the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 12. And then the capital mandate to execute those who curse Mother or father is found in Exodus 21, 17, Leviticus 20, verse 9. The commandment to honor father and mother has bite, doesn't it? It does. God was not kidding. Here in the text, Jesus is accusing them of violating the first commandment, and he's implying that they deserve the consequences of the second. It'll come out as the text goes on. He says, but, so God has said this, but you say... Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father and mother. That is, honor his father and mother with that material goods. Thus, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. So this is, this is what the Pharisees were telling people to do when their parents would come to them in serious financial distress. Just say to them, Corban. Now, Jesus doesn't, or Matthew doesn't translate that for us here, but Mark does. So your parents, they're in financial destitution. And they come to you and they say, can you you please help me? And they say, it's all Corban. Corban is a Hebrew word that means a consecrated gift to God, a financial offering to God. 
The Pharisees would say to people, listen, if your parents come to you in financial, need of financial assistance, just say to them, you're too late. I'm sorry, but, but I've gifted all my money to God and I can't give it to you. I can't give to you what I've dedicated to God. That would be sacrilegious. Then you don't want me to offend God, do you? It sounds so spiritual, but in this tradition, these people could still use the money for themselves. Crazy. The Pharisees were using tradition to help people avoid their moral and spiritual obligation to their parents. This tradition of gifting money to God had zero authority, but it was being used to facilitate greed and allow people to curse their parents to poverty. And you know the Pharisees had called Corbin before. Okay? So indeed, the implication is that these Pharisees didn't only counsel others to do this. They had been doing it themselves. And so Jesus just comes out with it. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. Now, up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount and other teachings, Jesus has mentioned the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, all these people. But this is the first time in a public setting that he's looked them in the face and called them hypocrites. Yeah. Now, we use the word hypocrite differently than the Jews did in that historical context. It didn't simply mean to say one thing and do another because these Pharisees were saying and doing exactly what they were counseling others to do. Understand that? So in this instance, it wasn't saying one thing and doing another. They're saying and doing. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. This word speaks of someone who acts pretentiously. Uh, they're a counterfeit. They, they assume, it assumes that they speak under fiend character. That's what uh, Spiro Sodiades said. He's, he's Greek, so he's definitely an authority on Greek words. A hypocrite was, they were a wicked person who presented themselves as spiritual and moral, but inside they were filled with false motives, with evil intentions. So Jesus just called it like it was, publicly insulting and humiliating these men. So, but be careful with this. Name calling is biblical, <laughs> but you better be very careful with it, okay? Jesus was name calling, but was very accurate, was well-deserved, it was appropriate. And these guys should have just been a little more gracious when they accused the disciples. And Jesus didn't come to them with equal force, mind you, because there's only one cure for a bully. It's a bigger bully, okay? He came back with greater force. And then to drive his point further, he says, you guys are the subject of Isaiah's prophecy, which, which really perfectly defines hypocrisy. Isaiah said, these people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They present themselves publicly as spiritual, as lovers and worshipers of God, those who say spiritual things, but the condition of their heart does not reflect the heart of God. They're posers. They're, they're frauds. They, they look, they appear outwardly to be close to God, but God says of them, they're not anywhere near me. Nobody in the church has ever been guilty of this. You know, every time I read this, I, I cannot evade a particular thought uh, about the modern worship movement because of something in my past. You know, these churches, uh, some churches are just filled with, with great music, 
emotional worshipers that shout to the Lord, lifting their hands. There's this great external display of piety and devotion, but then they spend their week in bed with their girlfriend. It it drives me insane. A friend of mine attended the gorge uh, here in Washington where annually they have this, this big thing with Christian bands and and it's, this, it's this, this worship festival. And they were visiting one of the, the convenience stores that was extremely close to where the festival was, and they were talking to the manager. And in passing, the manager had, had mentioned that he sells as many condoms at this festival as he does any of the other secular ones. So, so we have this, this, this huge festival that is there to, to present itself as very spiritual, and thousands and thousands of Christians go there and raising their hands and putting on this big display. And I think that the prophecy of Isaiah is, is, is there. And, and, and God is saying, I, I see all of this, but I don't see it inside of you. Now, I'm sure that there are many genuine and sincere godly worshipers there. But I don't think this movement should be interpreted as we often do. It's not as spiritual as we think. I think... My personal opinion is that the majority of it is carnal. I don't really think it has the substance that we think that it does. It's all hype and hysteria. And then many of these churches that are advancing this modern worship movement, I listen to these leaders and they're, they're always talking about their spiritual experiences with God, some of them even with angels, and how God is working all these great miracles through them and all this revelation, fresh, brand new revelation from God but it's all a lie. It's all smoke and mirrors. That itself is just hype and hysteria. You guys, the reality, as you know, of one's relationship with Christ is not demonstrated by the vigor of their Sunday morning worship, but by their daily walk. I mean, we, in the modern church, we, we think that worship is confined to, to singing songs to Jesus, but all through the scriptures, worship is the daily life of the believer. Obedience is an act of worship. Living in honor of God is true worship. And I don't mean to get down on, on worshiping in song, as, as Paul says in Colossians 3, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. Ephesians chapter 5, we should be doing those things. That should be the, I mean, what is bubbling up out of our heart because of what God has done and what he's doing, what he will do. The religious leaders of Israel, understand, they would get up in the morning and they would they would cover their hypocrisy with, with pharisaical clothing. You, you knew a Pharisee when they walked down the street because they wore a particular kind of clothing. They would conceal their, prayer, their pride rather, with long prayers in the marketplace, and they would hide their contempt for the people by their strict adherence to tradition. And, and, and the sick thing about that whole relationship of the Pharisees and the common people was the common people just thought that they were superheroes, they, are, they admired the Pharisees, but the Pharisees in their heart, they despised the people because they weren't as spiritual as them. And then Jesus comes along and he's just like, he just exposes everything. They're hypocrites. They're frauds. The people were deeply impressed, but God was just nauseated by them. And they were the very opposite of Nathaniel. I love the exchange there in John chapter one because Philip goes to Nathaniel and he says, hey, we found the Messiah. Jesus from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's like, Nazareth? What good can come out of Nazareth? And he's, Philip's like, you're just going to have to come and see. 
And then Jesus sees Nathanael and says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. So he insults Jesus, <laughs> and Jesus compliments Nathanael. He's a man without guile. The, the concept of the word there, it means he's completely transparent. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing behind his back, nothing up his sleeve. If he said it, it was sincere. There, there's no guessing his motive. He was just, Nathanael was the real deal, okay? But these Pharisees, they were, they were fakes, dressed in all of their <clears throat> religious garb, but it was just a farce. Isaiah had more to say. He says, and in vain. We should be very careful with this. They had all of the external actions. They had the the prayers. They had the diet. They had clean hands. They had all of this outward display of piety, lifting their hands in worship, whatever. But in vain, God says they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of God. Men, I want to bring those together for myself and anybody else that opens the word and teaches it. It's an act of worship. It should be. Notice how the two are connected there. In vain they worship me, teaching, teaching. Their hearts were far from God as they worshiped him. All that they did was for nothing. How so? He says, by teaching the commandments of men, that is tradition, as if it were divine instruction. What were they doing with tradition? They were elevating its authority. They were teaching it as though it was the teaching of God. They were communicating to the people of Israel that their tradition had as much authority as the law of God. Now, you have to, we have to watch out for this because no religious group, and I mean Jewish or Christian, has ever come out and said that their tradition had as much authority as the law of God. But in practice, that's exactly what is communicated, just as we see with the emphasis of ceremonial hand-washing. So what happened as the tradition became entrenched in the culture, the people became preoccupied with tradition rather than the word of God. And so that's worshiping God in vain. And it's not just something of the past. This happened in church history very early in church history as well. Now, by the ninth century, and I know that's a little bit later, the Roman church, you guys understand they were intoxicated with tradition, and not all of it was benign. Many, if not thousands, of the traditions of the Roman church, the Catholic church, is contrary to scripture. And by the Reformation in the 1500s, there was a complete denial through tradition of the biblical gospel, which they maintain today, a gospel of works rather than a gospel of grace. And today, the Roman church will say that tradition does not have as much authority as the Bible, but in practice, they contradict themselves. Many of their traditions are adhered to in spite of the scriptures. And then within the various Protestant traditions after the Reformation, as if there wasn't enough important things to defend, like the truth of the gospel, they argued over whose liturgical tradition was the most correct. Most correct according to what? According to what? There are no liturgies in the New Testament not to draw from or argue over. There's no divine standard to debate the interpretation of when it comes to liturgies. You have to have a liturgy there to argue over what it all means. Amen? Now, I know that you guys have read the New Testament a few times. There's just no liturgy there. It doesn't exist. If Jesus wanted his church to be liturgical in tradition and practice, 
he would have provided one in the Bible. And what is so interesting to me is that one of the, the five declarations of the Reformation was sola scriptura. It means only the Bible, only scripture. Well, if it's only scripture, why do you have a liturgy? That's not out of the scriptures. And if it's only scripture, shouldn't it be only scripture? Don't say it unless you mean it, you know? It's all human tradition passed down by the elders of one form of Protestantism or another. And it's little different than what the Pharisees were into. You know, the best thing to do with these kinds of traditions is to leave them alone and to keep to the word of God. When tradition is given any authority above zero, it reduces the value of worship. And eventually, and as we've seen historically, cold mechanical religion takes its place. Now, the first, second generation of tradition is, is usually quite robust, but the third, the fourth, the following generations, it's, it's gone, it's gone. No tradition of man can be taught or practiced as divine instruction without poisoning one's relationship with God. As Isaiah said, the heart is separated from God and then worship is empty. I think it's important also just to point out in all of this that this isn't typically the way Jesus responded to people. Of course, I mean name-calling and uh, attacking character. But when it came to the misleading of the people and, and distracting them from the word of God, he got pretty excited, didn't he? The lamb of God became the lion and uh, completely out of the cage. I love Jesus for that. They'll mess, the Pharisees will mess with the disciples later again and they'll get the same treatment. So he's done talking to the Pharisees and he says, when he called the multitude to, to himself, he said to them, hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. So the tradition of the Jews was a distraction from what really mattered to God. It's, and I think that's satanic, by the way. They had things backwards, but Jesus will explain that in a moment. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I saw the contortions on their face when I said it to their face. What's going on here? Well, A.T. Robertson said that the disciples were uneasy by the expression made by the Pharisees. Because see, the, Pharise the, the, the disciples being a part of that culture uh, they understood all of this very well. So did Jesus, but he just didn't care. Okay? They saw murder in the eyes of the Pharisees. Jesus just accused them of violating God's law and teaching others to do the same. And he implied that they were worthy of death because of it. And to boot, Jesus shamed them in public. There was no saving face. You, you came with your accusations publicly, guess what you get? You get a public rebuke. That's how it went down. So the disciples, they, they, they saw the reaction of the Pharisees. They're concerned. And it's because the Pharisees had a great deal of power. They had a lot of power. You know, after all, they had enough influence, enough leverage to manipulate Pilate to execute Jesus. Okay? And if they could not manipulate Pilate to do that, the Pharisees were evil enough that they would have found some private way to kill Jesus. And they tried a couple times. And not only this, they had the authority to ostracize everyone who associated with Jesus. They could destroy your business, 
your reputation and they could banish you from religious life in Israel. They could excommunicate you from society. So there was reason for concern, but Jesus here is teaching these guys how not to care about consequences. That doing what is right unto God should be done even if it hurts, even if there are social consequences, even if there are financial consequences. You guys understand? They're concerned in unbelief, but Jesus is confident in faith. Okay? He's going to do everything that pleases his father, even if it, and it will, get him killed. But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. So, in other words, he's saying because God did not plant them, that is, ordain them as spiritual leaders over his people, he did not recognize their legitimacy. They were all like weeds in a, a flower garden who, when the gardener sees them, he does what? He yards them out of the ground, okay? And Jesus is anticipating his father doing that with the Pharisees. So Jesus says to the disciples, let them alone. It's kind of like, don't sweat it. Don't worry about it. They were offended. Okay? They were offended. And they're blind. They're blind guides leading the blind. And they will eventually destroy themselves, of course. But Jesus was there to give sight to as many as he could. Concerning ourselves with what the Father thinks, what pleases him. The fear of man will always lead to compromise. Scriptures say the fear of man is a snare, but to do what pleases God is always good. The fear of man enslaves you to man, and uh, according to Christ, we're not to be slaves of man. We're to be slaves of righteousness. Then Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. Now, what Peter calls a parable is what Jesus said in verse 11, okay? It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, that is what defiles So Jesus responds, he says, do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? How many of you guys have changed a diaper? I found some disturbing things in my children's diapers. (laughs) If you haven't changed a diaper, I'm sure you've eaten something that was too spicy. You've been fully educated on all of this. So tradition had so, you know, clouded their judgment. The, The people of Israel, even the disciples, that they, they struggled differentiating between spiritual and moral issues versus what was not. And, and if you were ever a part of a cult, and, and trust me, there's a number of people in our church that were formerly part of cults, and hearing their testimony, they say, being raised in that, being indoctrinated in that, I just couldn't see behind it. No, nothing else made sense. Only what I was trained in, only the things that I was raised in made sense. So when when the truth of things were being presented to me, at first it was just confusing and nonsense. And it took time, it, it took the, the Holy Spirit to begin to open my eyes, to help me to see and to understand those kinds of things. We should be patient with those people. But Jesus just says, look, this, this is just as simple as what, as what co- goes in must come out. That's all there is to it. He says, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And they defile a man, for out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Spiritual, moral matters are a matter of the heart. Okay? So don't lose sight of what Jesus is saying here. I think people get distracted by the first part of the, the sentence. 
the things which proceed out of the mouth. Uh, the mouth, mind you, is just an instrument, a tool of the heart. Understand? It's just a tool. So don't lose sight of what Jesus is, is saying there. What defiles is what is manifested in the heart itself. So apparently, according to Jesus, there's, there's a problem with the heart. Now, he doesn't mean the physical heart that's pounding in your chest, of course. He's referring to that fallen, broken, and defiled nature of man. As Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Now, this didn't just happen to us as we were raised in an immoral culture. This is something we were born with. We were born broken. Amen? We were born busted at conception. The mouth is just an instrument. Again, those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. They defile a man. But other things come out of the heart as well. Evil thoughts. So you don't have to just say it. You can think it. Murders, adulteries, fornications, uh, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Somebody asked me about fornication uh, last week. And, um, you know, does the, the Bible condemn uh, sex before marriage? And I think that what many people are looking for is that phrase, that it's wrong to have sex before marriage. Well, the Bible doesn't use that language. It uses language like fornication, okay? It uses language like adultery. So yes, any sex outside of the context of the covenant of marriage um, is condemned by God uh, because sex itself is sacred to God, just as life is sacred to God. But it all begins in the heart the corruption that is within us. He says, these are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So the point of all of this is that tradition had made the Pharisees self-righteous and then critical of others. Because they had very clean hands and they looked very good on the outside, but their thoughts about others and their self-righteous view of themselves defiled them, defiled them. It corrupted them, corrupt within. And it just had manifested itself through thoughts, words, actions, and even their teachings. Now, I think what is clear from all of this, that we must be ever so careful that we do not become like the Pharisees. Amen. And if you know yourself at all, you know how easy it is. You know how easy it is. We can't forget that though we have the truth of God's word, and that we've received and enjoy God's salvation, that we are not really better than those who are not saved. We are not. We're certainly better off because of Christ's redeeming work in our lives, but we're not really better than anyone else. We should have a better understanding of spiritual things. We should be morally better than the world out there, but we are not somehow superior in and of ourselves. We should be humbled by what God has done for us. And our perspective of people must go back to Genesis chapter 1. In the image of God, he created man. Every human being possesses the image of God. Okay? That's how we must look at them, and that is how we must treat them. Otherwise, we will be defiled. Amen? We will be defiled. Now, um, I've said a number of things about tradition. I may have stepped on somebody's toes. Uh, if you would like to talk about it, I'd love to have a conversation with you. Please be mature enough 
to ask questions, to get clarity, and uh, hopefully we can clear it up. Yeah. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Well, Father, we, I, we must be traditional by nature. Um, I'm certainly self-righteous and critical by nature, and, and it's, it's sinful, and there's no excuse for it. And so, Lord, by your spirit, by your grace, Lord, we, we pray that you would reveal ourselves to us, that you would convict us deeply, Lord, and that we would be conscious when we're tempted to be a Pharisee. And Lord, that you would humble us and that you would help us to have your perspective. And Lord, I, I just pray that you would guard us from, from tradition. Uh, not that we don't have routines orderly ways of doing things, but that we wouldn't develop something in our midst that would then give us the impression that we're really, we've got it down, we've nailed it, and that we're so much better than other groups, Lord. Lord, help us to do things here at Calvary Chapel that please you well and are edifying to people. And Lord, guard us from any kind of self-righteousness as a body. Lord, we thank you for all that you're doing, and um, we just love you. In Jesus' name, amen.